All right, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. <clears throat> talking this week in our Ecclesiastical Schematics series, talking about the mission. So we're going to have a few more weeks of discussion about the doctrine of the church. And so last week we talked about the church itself, the ecclesia, kind of a broad view of what God says about the church and our identity. But this week we'll focus on the mission. What is the church supposed to do? Matthew chapter 28, let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to pick it up here in verse 16. Matthew 28, verse 16, these are the words of God. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Let's pray. Our Father and Holy Lord, as we turn to your word, may the Spirit of God rest upon us. Help us to be steadfast in our hearing, in our speaking, in our believing, and in our living. Through Christ our Lord, we pray, and amen. Amen. You can be seated. Well, on October 15th, 2017, so mark that date, October 15th, 2017, Cross and Crown gathered on the Lord's Day for the very first time. Here's what I said in my message that day, and I'll think that, I think you'll find it uh, fitting, especially if you're a bit newer to our fellowship, but here's what I said almost six years ago. Today marks an important time in the life of our young church. This is our first official Lord's Day gathering, and as important as this is, we also know that our getting together today for worship isn't the only thing that should concern us. In other words, we aren't to leave here today and think, well, this is all God wants us to do. We do wish to gather and worship the Lord in a way that honors Him, in a way that He requires. But we do not believe that our worship is solely reserved for Sunday morning. We have the opportunity to do what we do on Monday morning, and because we're not pietists, we must view our entire lives as an act of worship, even Monday morning. This is important to know because the reason for the existence of this assembly, this fellowship, is so that we can equip people to press the crown rights of King Jesus into every area of life. Jesus doesn't suddenly become king on Sunday morning and then Monday through Saturday, Satan takes over kingship of the world. No, Jesus Christ is Lord, Caesar is not. Satan has been plundered, Jesus owns the world, and what you do with your life and all your life matters. All of Christ for all of life is our mantra. That's what we believe, and that's what we long to see take place in our nation. Because Sunday, the Lord's Day, is important, and because Monday through Saturday is just as important for the mission, we want everyone to see the entirety of their lives as an integral part to the mission of God. That was October 15th, 2017. Now, the reason I'm mentioning this here six years later is because I want you to know that from day one, from day one, Cross and Crown has set sail on a very specific course with a very specific mission in mind. In our day and age, it's easy for churches to become McFranchises, 
offering the very best goods and services that money can buy. Buildings that are often ugly make church buildings great again. Um, Massive budgets wasted on various ministry directors whose various jobs are to keep you busy with church activities, ultimately giving you the illusion of missional living. So buildings, massive budgets, and the latest light show technology, and they'll even throw in a positive thinking life coach guy with a microphone to help you. Not with archaic things like holiness and sanctification, but with platitudes and bumper sticker sloganeering that'll keep you thinking about their brand throughout the week. And if you're lucky, maybe you'll feel better about yourself along the way. Now, having worked in this sort of environment before, I can tell you that these staff meetings that happen on Monday morning all revolve around the question, how, how to give people a better experience next Sunday. I've been in those meetings. I've had those, I, I confess, I'm repenting here. I've had those meetings. I always felt uncomfortable in them. Now, it, all of what I've just said is not missional living for the kingdom of God, not even a little bit. It is brand management. It is customer acquisition and it's customer retention and loyalty. That is what that is. And truth be told, it's more akin to managing a production on Broadway. Now, it should be fairly obvious at this point that I'm not criticizing buildings. I would love for us to have our own space someday. Would love it. Budgets are not under my criticism, generally speaking, because money does help aid the mission. God uses our offerings and our gifts to aid the mission in various capacities. And I have to just confess, I am okay with some degree of incandescent lighting so that we can see our Bibles clearly, one another clearly, see the Lord's table clearly, and be able to clearly follow along as we sing together. So lighting itself isn't inherently a problem. I suppose, though, when you leave and... It's been flashing in your face for an hour at church. Perhaps you may end up with health issues. And I also need to hasten to add that while turning a phrase isn't itself bad, the fact is the truth of God's word must be the thing that prevails in our churches and not the oprification of Christianity. Now, I am convinced that the majority of evangelicals today, broadly speaking, have no idea what the mission of the global church really is. I think many believe that the goal is to just be nice to people while living out the American dream. And I can prove it to you starting in March of 2020 onward. Maybe, maybe along the way, see a few people get saved and baptized once in a while so you can send out that urgent email. We had 10 confessions this week and they're all saved and I remember at my previous place, my first Sunday was Easter Sunday, and a man came forward, there was an altar call, and uh, he said, you know, I, I've, I've, just, I've always believed in Jesus, but I just felt like coming forward to repent, and I feel like I'm not living the way God wants me to. And so we prayed together, and it was a great conversation. The next day, that was counted a salvation by the uh, pastor at the time. And so anything to pump up the numbers, anything to try to keep people excited, keep the brand in front of you, making sure that you're coming back on Sunday. Now, you should come back on Sunday because we gather on the Lord's Day for a very specific reason. reason. But it's not 
for show. It's to worship God, period. Now, Christianity today is largely astray, and the reason this is the case is because we have gone away from biblical authority and opted instead for syncretistic cultural expressions of Christianity, which invariably dictate how the visible church functions. I had this conversation with the kids here this morning. We've created a category where you can sort of, yes, I kind of believe in God vaguely, and then that be acceptable, but you're okay with, you know, the rainbow flag going anywhere and everywhere. And you've just compromised. You have synced up with the cultural views of the day, whatever wins the day, and you still kind of conveniently carry the label Christian, but you really have no convictions about biblical authority, the triune God, the nature of, of Scripture, and so forth. With, with I, well, I think we have truncated gospel messages, theologically neutered CEO pastors, and church members with itchy ears. And it is really quite bad, and I'm not here to just sound the alarm. I do not lose hope in any of this because God always has his remnant. So as, as bad as I painted that picture, you shouldn't walk away hopeless. You should, you should actually be emboldened with hope because God always has his remnant. God always raises up his church. We just sang about it in the hymn, The Church is One Foundation. It looks bleak, but Christ is, is moving by his spirit in his people. And what I want to do today is give you a broader view of the mission of the church of Jesus Christ. What is she supposed to be doing? What is the church supposed to be doing? What sorts of things should she be spending her time on? Notice the pronoun there, the correct pronoun. What should she, the church, be doing? What should she spend her time on? And to what end? How does this apply with the family? How does it apply with things like politics and business and education or injustice? The mission of the church is centered on what Christ has called his body, he is the head, what he has called his body to do, and it all stems from a Great Commission worldview. So my argument and my contention today is that it all comes from a Great Commission worldview. So let's look at our text. Matthew 28, verse 18. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep, some translations say observe, all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Known as the Great Commission, this passage is central to the missional identity of the Christian church. You'll recall that this moment is situated between two important events, the resurrection of Jesus and then the ascension of Jesus. He gathers his apostles together and he explains several things. First, in verse 18, Christ has been given all authority. Note the word all authority. In Greek, it means all authority. <laughs> and notice the location of this all authority in heaven and on earth. Now, pietists conveniently skip over that part about the earth. 
Jesus is in voluntary exile. He has all the authority in heaven, but he's really not, his kingdom really isn't that much present here on earth. Kind of a little bit it is with the people of God, but they start reading into the Great Commission. Christ has been given all authority in heaven and, on, and, and authority on earth. In the Jewish worldview, only God possesses universal authority. That's why the Pharisees were so upset with Jesus from time to time, because he was making himself like God. Well, he didn't have to make himself like God. He is God. He's the exact imprint of God. But in the Jewish worldview, that was the case. Only God has universal authority. Every Jew in this time knew that. God has authority. Yahweh God has authority. So what was Jesus claiming here? Well, nothing short of absolute divinity. He is truly God who took on true flesh. The resurrection was and remains his vindication. That's 1 Timothy 3.16. And thus, his own identity circles back to where it started. He is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. Now, it's no small thing that he mentions heaven and earth together. When you're reading that, don't gloss over that. It's no small thing here. He already told us earlier in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount that our prayers should include the petition for the kingdom and will of God to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We've already seen this language in, in the Gospel of Matthew. Through the preaching of the Gospel, Calvin notes, he establishes his throne on the earth. The establishment of the throne is in principle already in place. The nations are being subdued by the Gospel. And I, and I love Calvin's very simple <laughs> observation. He establishes his throne on the earth. Through the gospel, the throne is established. And, and by the way, make note of that. In principle, it already is established, but it's also working itself out. The implications are working itself out. So through the preaching of the gospel and with the Spirit's gift of regeneration, heaven is now opened up for men to enter his gates with thanksgiving. So in a sense, heaven and earth have been opened up thanks to Christ. Um, earth is now opened up to this world-conquering, good news-proclaiming pro message, right? And now heaven is opened up. We can enter his gates with thanksgiving. So where then is Christ's throne? Well, heaven and earth. The earth is his footstool. He is seated on David, David's throne. Dispensationalists get this wrong. David's throne was simply an ad hoc extension, just like the temple and the tabernacle, of the heavenlies. So David's throne was sort of a, a, a leased endeavor. <laughs> it was leased from the throne of, of God. But now David's throne, David's throne is simply a way of speaking about God's everlasting throne. Jesus sits on that throne. So his throne is established, and the resurrection has already occurred. The ascension to the heavenly throne is next for Jesus. After he leaves his disciples, where does he go? He ascends to the throne. That's Daniel 7. That's the coronation ceremony. So Christ is indeed king and Lord over all things. He says that very thing here in Matthew 28. Heaven came to earth so that the earth could be saved. Christ in heaven now means the earth is in good hands. So we are in league with the true king of kings, so fear not, church. Second, Jesus tells them here in verse 19, to go, therefore, to go, therefore, or some translations prefer, therefore, go. 
But based on the authority of Christ's global empire, the disciples, who became office-holding apostles, are sent forth to make disciples of all the nations, verse 19, which is to say, the world must be subdued. Authorities established, the world now must be subdued. All nations, not just a few individuals from each nation, it's a misunderstanding of the Greek text when you, when you conclude that, but all nations are to be subdued by the power of the gospel and brought into the obedience of faith. The commentator John Trapp said it this way, The apostles were those white horses whereupon the Lord Christ sitting went forth conquering and to conquer. So on the basis of Christ's authority, the apostles went forth into the world conquering and to conquer. That beautiful vision of Revelation chapter 19 of Christ riding on the horse conquering, the sword coming out of his mouth, the word of God proclaimed, subduing the nations. That is history. That's what's happening since the ascension. So Christians are goers, goers into the world. Third, while going, they are to do certain things. First, they are to baptize. Nations must become Christian, okay? They're, they're to become Christian first. We need nations to confess Christ, and, you know, even as I prepare for my trip to Zambia, Zambia on paper in its constitution is a Christian nation. They acknowledge the lordship of Christ. And I would love to see that in the United States Constitution. First of all, statism is a problem, but we acknowledge the lordship of Christ. That would be a great step. Um, but when, when I go to Zambia, I'm also in a situation where I say, don't presume upon that. The lordship of Christ isn't contained to a piece of paper. It has to be fleshed out. So we need nations to become Christian. And then they are to be administered baptism in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is, nations are to be consecrated by covenant into the efficacious sacrament of the holy waters of baptism. We are actually supposed to baptize them. They're supposed to be brought into the covenant. And to baptize nations is to set them apart in covenant with Christ to judicially bring them under the name of King Jesus. Fourthly, having baptized them into the new covenant of Christ, they must then be taught. Notice that in verse 20. Baptize, teach. Water, then word, then wine. In order to teach the nations, we must know what we are teaching. Jesus is not ambiguous here. We are to teach them to keep all that I, that is Christ, commanded you. What should nations be taught? They're baptized, they're in covenant, they must be taught, educated, discipled. Well, they must be taught what Christ commanded. They must be taught Scripture. They must be taught the Word, the, the word of God, the law of God. The whole of man for the whole of culture must be taught the whole of the law and the whole of the gospel. They must be taught how to discern good from evil, like Solomon. They must be taught how to hate sin, how to love justice, how to enact righteousness in all levels of culture, including how to be godly husbands and wives, fathers and mothers, businessmen and homemakers, legislators and governors. Jesus requires his Christians to approve that which is holy and acceptable, what is the will of God our Father, and to make sure that it is taught in our churches and in the world. And we move out of that. Churches are embassies, right? They're beachheads going into the culture, and the church grows and expands. 
But we move out because Christ has authority. So you never, you never lose that. We don't move out on our own ambition. We don't move out into the world contending for ideas because we think we're cute and smart. We do it in the name of Christ. We do it under the authority of Christ. So we advance. We never retreat. That's why I jokingly call retreats their actually advances. Never call it a retreat. We do not surrender. <laughs> we, we, we advance. We never retreat because... Christ is enthroned. The church has a didactic function. We are called to teach the world. We are to teach the world how to obey the law of God in every area of life. What does a godly family look like? What does a church, what should a church look like? What should civil magistrates look like? That's our task. That's our job. The, the, the enemy is teaching the nations, okay? The binding of Satan means that the nations can never be kept from the gospel. But, but evil does want to be uh, paraded. Evil does want to teach and educate your children. Evil does want um, you to be discipled into that pagan worldview. But we must insist that it is Christ who is the educator. So that is what Christ commands. And that is what we must do. That is a snapshot of the Great Commission. We must acknowledge the lordship of christ we must go into the world we must take the authority of christ proclaim it show people the nations how how to how to follow him to be baptized in his name to take on the name of god himself which is a covenantal idea you are in covenant with god and then we teach them to observe this is how this is what family looks like it doesn't look like what parades itself in the month of june (laughs) Okay, it's, you know, I hereby declare this is humility, sackcloth and ashes month. Let's see if that takes on. So that's the Great Commission. So how shall we then live? We do live in some interesting times. The war for the heart of culture rages on more and more each day, especially in, in this month. And yet many Christians have been convinced that there's nothing that can be done save for being tolerant and accepting of everything that comes our way, even if it violates the first commandment. The reason Christianity today is so far gone is because we have longed for the priestly work of Christ apart from the kingly work of Christ. We have longed for the priestly work of Christ apart from the kingly work of Christ. In other words, we love the cross and the empty tomb at the expense of Christ's ascension and authority. Many evangelicals, they want that get out of hell free card. That's what they look for. They don't want to be held accountable. They don't, they don't want to pursue holiness. Holiness is that old fuddy-duddy stuff that, that the John Owen guy mentioned about be killing sin. Yeah, okay. What is a sin? He was probably a bit over the top. Thomas Watson's doctrine of repentance, come on. What do we do with that today? I do think that we, many people love the, the cross. They don't understand the significance of the empty tomb, but they enjoy it at least once a year. And then they completely ignore what the ascension means and the authority that comes with it. So we want forgiveness of sins, and, 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 and I'm thinking highly of evangelical culture here, And we want justification by faith alone, though even that's become compromised. But do we want 
daily submission and repentance. Do we want that? And I'm not talking just in vague terms. We're talking concretely here. Do we want, get on your knees and cry out to Christ repentance? Do we want the dominion of Christ over the nations, including, but certainly not limited to, dominion over the political sphere of life? Do we want Christ to be acknowledged in these, in these United States? Or are we just content to watch Rome burn and we'll fiddle and watch it all unfold? See, Abraham Kuyper noticed this very issue at the end of the 19th century and into the 20th century. Kuyper writes this, How then can you continue to harbor the illusion that as long as you honor Jesus as high priest, the honor of the king may leave you indifferent? That's a hundred years ago in the Netherlands. How? How can, how can you harbor this illusion? How can you cling to this illusion that you can honor Jesus as the high priest, but be indifferent about his kingdom and his kingship and his lordship? It's amazing. I stumbled upon that quote this week, reading Kuiper, and it's logged somewhere. And I, it was God's timing, apparently. And I thought, this is it. This is it. How long can the church get by shrinking the gospel down to the priestly death and resurrection of Christ without the inclusion of the kingly resurrection and ascension of Christ? Now, Kuiper rightly called it an illusion. It is an illusion. It's an erroneous invention to suggest that we can have Christ's substitutionary work as the great high priest over against the honor due his name as the Lord and King of the world. Now, Cornelius Van Til, he agreed with Kuiper. Um, Van Til had much appreciation for the Dutchman. And this statement by Van Til became the basic thesis for Cross and Crown. And Van Til wrote this. He said, unless we press the crown rights of our king in every realm, we shall no, not long retain them in any realm, end quote. Now, I read that years ago, and I thought, that's it. That's it. If we will not do the work of pressing the crown rights of King Jesus into the world, then we will not retain that in any realm at all. And we've bought into the issue of neutrality, you know, thinking, well, you know, it's fine if the culture doesn't acknowledge Christ, and especially in our political institutions, and, you know, it's, they're neutral anyway. It's not like they're going to start, you know, shoving all of these views in our faces. <laughs> I want to state Van Til's comment here differently. And, and, and this was, again, sort of a side comment in one of Van Til's books. It wasn't even kind of a basic running you know, thesis of the book itself. But let me say it differently. Unless we take seriously the kingdom of Christ, actively seeing the dissolution of humanism and autonomy, then the church will have lost its saltiness, making good only for trampling underfoot. Why does it seem like the church is, is just 
you know, the culture is just running roughshod over us. Things, things are bleak. Well, why? You have to ask the question, why? And Jesus tells us the answer. You lost your saltiness. You lost your distinction. You lost the very thing that made salt salt. Now, to say that we believe in the kingship of Christ is to affirm that Jesus demands everything. All right, we've kind of lost this, but I'm going to try to, this is a course correction here. I'm saying we generally, but I want to make sure we at Cross and Crown understand this as well. Jesus demands everything. He does. He demands it all. He demands your heart. He demands your tongue, your hands, your wallet, your family, your church. He demands your state. He demands your nation. He demands your culture. He demands it all because he is king of kings. And for him to possess all authority in heaven and earth is simply another way of stating that there isn't one square inch, as Kuiper said elsewhere, of this world that Christ doesn't cry out, mine. And if you would have the priestly work of Christ only, you will not have the full authority of Christ. He does not simply have the authority and power to change hearts. He also has the power by the Great Commission Charter to issue orders. And he demands it all. So what is it we're supposed to do then? In light of that sort of comprehensive priest, king, indeed Christ is prophet, what are we supposed to do in light of that? Well, the missional lifestyle of the church is akin to building a culture. Let me say it again. The missional lifestyle of the church is akin, and it's like building a culture, a subculture, or a parallel culture. After the Spirit changes our hearts, He begins to change everything around us. It's meant to start in the heart, the center of your being, and then it, it works out from there. Right? That's why in, 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 our, in our parenting, in our relationships, it all starts in the heart. If you don't get to the heart, you're just doing works righteousness correction. You have to get to the heart. So it starts in the heart, and then it works itself out from there. As the missionary activity of the church increases, opposition increases as well. Have you all seen what happened in Uganda? Anybody see the headlines? Passing a law. Now, I didn't read the law, but I've read some different comments about it. Uh, essentially, and it's not even as sweeping as uh, many of those who are against it are saying, but um, it was a protection for children, and it was totally against homosexuality. And now, I love that it came about in June, because June is, is the end of Dobbs month, it's Humility Month, it's Wave Your Christian Flag Month, I mean, <laughs> we'll call it what you will. It's definitely not Pride Month. But when you start acting like a Christian, what do you think the world around you is going to do? Um, I remember one, one guy said, Uganda, send us your missionaries. <laughs> but as the, as the missionary activity of the church increases, opposition increases as well. However, it's not as though Christ is powerless in the face of Satan. He's not powerless. Sure, rebellious men will quickly assemble to try and thwart the enemy's advances. But don't forget that hell has gates that are not unassailable. Hell has gates, and they're not unassailable. Stated differently, it is the culture of the church. What the church brings to the world, her worship, 
her preaching, her witness, her singing, her prayers, her families, her education, her taking care of the poor, the full gamut of Christian experience, all of that, her, her countercultural living, that's what topples kingdoms. And what Jesus demands from his bride, that's us, is her holiness and her commitment to the mission. And he wants her washed with the word so that she's equipped to be holy as God is holy. He wants her to be spotless, clothed in his righteous robes. Jesus demands that we give ourselves to him wholly, not half-hearted, completely, not partially. He demands that we worship him exclusively. That's just the first commandment. First, second, third commandments all kind of come together and descend upon that very issue. But he demands that we worship him exclusively, that we give no quarter to idolatry in our hearts, in our churches, in our nation. He demands that we build strong families with covenant children, learning the Christian worldview and how to intersect with the culture. There's a reason the psalmist calls them arrows in the quiver. So sharpen them, train them, parents. He demands, this is Christ, he demands husbands to lead their wives and families and for wives to build their homes. He demands pastors and elders to lead the charge, doing the work of an evangelist and helping God's people as Christ's under-shepherds. He demands that we gather together to worship him in spirit and in truth. He demands that we pray, we, we, we pray together, we confess our sins to, together, we sing together, we break bread at table together. We look to his word together and we hold him as supreme in all things. That's the church culture that we want. Not bickering about all these other things. He wants us to focus on his word, on the truth, to build up from there. He demands that we teach nations, which means we must be engaged to some degree in the work of spreading the gospel news. Everything from changing diapers and folding clothes to agitating politicians and sharing the gospel, seeding the gospel wherever you're at. He, we reconstruct education, business, and other economic enterprises while seeking to deconstruct the idolatry that parades itself every single day. We are called to take thoughts captive internally and externally, making them captive to the Word of God and obedient to the Word of God. We interpose, friends. Interposition is a biblical doctrine. We interpose for the weak and helpless, those suffering under the boot of statism, like our preborn neighbors. Speaking of neighbors, we ought to know them. That can be a challenge, but we ought to know them. We ought to know the, place, the people at the places we regularly, regularly visit. We need to know their names, engage them, ask them how you can pray for them, etc. All of that. Rhythms, rhythms of life, your normal day-to-day, -day, aid in gospel mission as we infiltrate the cultural ranks. So what is the mission? It is the pressing of the crown rights of King Jesus into every area of life. I said it six years ago, and it remains true today. And we are committed. I will go to my casket preaching that. All of Christ, his priesthood and his kingship for all of life. And we mean all of life. 
It is the faithful and imaginative reading of God's word, the the pure and unadulterated worship of the triune God, and the intelligent, intelligent engagement of culture, all for the glory and supremacy of Christ. The mission is as comprehensive as the worldview it represents. And it means all hands on deck. Every child, every mother, every father, every single one. We are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. And Christ has called us to live for his glory and kingdom. Not complain. Anybody complain this week? I mean, it's in the Bible. Don't grumble. Oh, it's fine. It's a respectable sin. Go on. Leave here today and complain. No. Don't complain. Don't grumble. Is it reading? It's amazing the stuff that Moses endured. I understand sometimes. <laughs> How do you, you got, he led Israel out of Egypt and they're all saying, we want to go back. You remember what it was, right? <laughs> Don't complain. Do not squander your life. Don't waste time. Redeem the time, Paul says in Ephesians. Don't waste it. Don't be selfish. Don't cause division in churches. Don't be lackadaisical. You know, when, when the church takes her eye off the mission, she becomes compromised, she becomes immobile, and frankly, she becomes useless. There are so many useless churches here today. They're useless. And our greatest enemy isn't the globalists and collectivists, as much as I would wish God would crush the World Economic Forum. But that's not our greatest enemy. Our greatest enemy isn't even Satan or death. Has Jesus not bound the strong man? Has Jesus not conquered death? What is our greatest enemy? Really, what is it? The greatest enemy we face is our own apathy, our own indifference, our own disobedience. The mission is the global conquest of all nations. And if it seems daunting to you that we're supposed to do that, then you're at the right place. That's because it is. It was for the 11 disciples, too. They were doubting. Do you notice that in the text? Some of them doubted. Jesus dies and is raised, and some are still doubting. I don't know. This seems like a scam. Are you with the IRS? <laughs> this is a scam. I don't, what is going on here? And Jesus gives these orders to a bunch of ragtag fishermen guys who, many of who couldn't walk and chew gum, and says, take the world on. You've never felt more of a daunting thing in your life than that. But do we not serve the risen and ascended Lord? Then we must get to work. We must not be distracted, but instead focused. No dilly-dallying around. We've been giving, given marching orders, and I believe that when the Lord gave those orders, I'm going to be so bold as to say, he intended us to actually accomplish them. That when he said to disciple the nations, to baptize them and teach them, I believe Jesus intends for that to happen. And he will not get off of his throne until his enemies are defeated. He wants it to happen. So do you believe it? Do we believe? Then we must act. The mission is right in front of you. Your family is your mission, your work, your vocation, your culture. It's right in front of you. That is your task. So you, here's my best advice. Use what you have 
Start where you are and do what you can every single day. Use what you have, start where you are, do what you can every single day for, the, for, for crown rights and, and the covenant of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hail to Jesus Christ is reigning. All will bow and all will name him Jesus, King of Kings. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we glorify you and your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that your Holy Spirit has been given to us so that we could even attempt to accomplish the task that you've given us. It seems like a lot. Indeed it is for the gospel to conquer the nations, especially when you live in an apostate nation like we do here in America. It seems daunting, but we trust that you have conquered Satan, sin, and death, that in you, Christ, you are the head of us, the body. We are your bride, and so we want to follow your will to be directed into the ways of your kingdom. And so I pray for cross and crown that you would strengthen us, keep us from folly, keep us from distracting and complaining and all of these things that sometimes come our way. Would you strengthen our families, God? Would you be with our children as they grow and learn what it means to follow you? I pray that they would see the examples set before them, that they would, would take it upon themselves, that they wouldn't despise their baptism, but they would instead embrace it. And as we come to your table, we sing, we eat, we rejoice. We're grateful to serve the King of Kings. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.